Now we're into Colossians, which is our study for this semester. It's been a while since I preached through one of Paul's letters. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, um, and it is a, uh, it's a letter that he wrote to a pretty small, insignificant church, which I think is actually kind of interesting, and I think a good, um, a good reminder for us. We, if you live in America, you tend to think that God works most powerfully through big, impressive things. So it's always nice to know, yes, there is a letter to the Romans, um, you know, Rome, the big, most important city of the ancient world, but it was, you know, a, a little church of, you know, very few people that, that were probably in that church there. But the Colossians is, is just a little city. Paul had never actually even been there. Um, he heard about this church that had been planted. The gospel had come to these people through another friend, Epaphras, that we'll hear about as we go through this letter. And he writes in this letter. And for me, it's, it's kind of a cool reminder that God cares about ordinary things Ordinary people, ordinary churches. And I, I, think that's, I think that's good, especially in a place like Belmont, where you're just surrounded with people that think they're just kind of one step away from, you know, setting the world on fire. Um, that, that won't really happen to most of us. Uh, I, I did see some interesting uh, study. It, it was last year. Um, it was some extraordinary. I, I'm off the top of my head. I didn't plan to say this. I'll, I'm sure I'll get this wrong. Somebody will look it up and, and correct me. I'm sure, but it, it was fascinating, like, a study of, like, um, I guess it was high school students or middle school students asked what they would do uh, by the time they were 25, and I think it was fully, like, a quarter of them or half of them um, fully expected that they'd be famous by the time they were 25. And, of course, you know that that's not true. That won't be true, right? Most of them will live fairly ordinary lives, and I think it's important that we understand that Christianity is about God meeting us in ordinary places as ordinary people. Particularly as we get into this verse 12 in this first chapter, I love the idea that God qualifies us to receive an inheritance, that it's not something we have to do by impressing God or anybody else. And that's really good news for those um, who maybe suspect that they can't impress God. Well, let's look at this. Uh, let's let's look at this letter. If you have a Bible, open it up. And and I want you to understand. You know, what's interesting is Paul writes this letter. He tells us why he writes the letter, not till chapter two. And when he gets there to chapter two, he says that I'm basically writing you this letter because I want you to be firm in understanding the truths of the gospel. It seems from when you start to go through this whole letter, which we won't do tonight. But when you go through this whole letter, you've seen. It seems that there was some false teaching that was beginning to trouble this church. It's a very young church. The, the people here haven't been Christians for very long. They came out of not a Jewish background, so they don't really know anything about the Old Testament or about kind of the things that God has been saying for, for centuries. They're all pretty new to this stuff. They're from more Greek, non-Jewish backgrounds. They haven't been Christians for very long, and it seems that they're being troubled by some false ideas. We'll get into more about that um, in the weeks to come. But I want you to see, it's interesting, he's worried about this church being vulnerable to some false teaching that is going to rob them of the joy of the gospel, of the good news. And it's interesting to see how he starts the letter. Because he doesn't start the letter saying, I'm worried about you and you better stand firm. He starts the letter thanking God for them and teaching them how to pray prayers of thankfulness. 
which seems rather counterintuitive. But I think, and I hope that you'll, you'll come to see the wisdom of that as we get into this tonight. I, I think there's just an incredibly profound point to be made from how he starts this letter. Because I think that this church, like many of us, is vulnerable because they suspect that they don't have everything they need. And I think for so many of us, we're, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not just our hearts, it's also the marketers. I mean, they, they, they prey on this sense that you are incomplete and you need something. And it comes into the church and even into the spiritual realm where people feel like, I just don't have everything that I need. And anybody that comes along with the latest product, whether it's religious or otherwise, we're quite vulnerable to that. And so the, the, the book of Colossians, I think, comes and speaks a very important message, even in our day, because thankfulness is really the antidote, really the antidote to this fear that we might not have everything we need that makes us so vulnerable to other things that would seek to steal our heart away. So as we look into this passage, I want you to, I want you to see this, and I want you to understand that that we're, we're very vulnerable if we're convinced that we need more than what we have in the gospel. And, and I think, uh, I, you know, I was reminded of that, that story by Nelson, you know, um, Nelson D. Rockefeller. You remember at one time, this guy, his personal wealth was 2% of the United States GDP. It's personal wealth. There's never been anybody really like, <laughs> like that since. He was asked one time, how much money is enough? You know his answer? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And I think we can all relate to that. It doesn't seem to matter what we have. We think that we just need a little bit more. And I think Paul shows incredible wisdom in starting this letter by reminding them of who God is and what he's done for them. Because it is really the thing that will begin to put them on solid footing and be able to resist um, this false teaching which promises to give them something more, something more spiritual, something more powerful, something more. So let's look at this uh, passage, Colossians chapter 1. Well, does somebody have a copy of it? I don't know what happened to mine. I guess I handed them all off to you guys. Is there one on this chair? Okay, back to where I was. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Start at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, literally means the good news, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. 
just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and was made known to us and has made known to us, sorry, your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I, I printed more, which we won't look at tonight, but if you jump down to the very bottom of the paper, if you have that, or if you're looking in the Bible, look down at chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. I just want to alert you to this. He finally gets to his purpose there in chapter 2, verse 4. I say this, all the stuff that's come before this, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So there he finally gets to his purpose. He doesn't want them to be deluded with plausible arguments. And so he prays that they would be thankful. You'd think, like, why wouldn't he come and give them sort of a theology lecture? Isn't that what we would do? Give them a theology lecture. Get, you know, maybe give them some discipleship materials. Or make sure they're singing good songs and not, you know, not crappy songs. No, he doesn't do any of that stuff. Instead... He comes to them and he says, here is what I've been praying. And let me let you in on what I'm praying because I want you to learn how to pray like this as well. So let's us pray and then we'll dig into this. Lord, we thank you that your ways are not our ways. And that as we come now to your word, we want to be under your word. Submit ourselves, not just to these words, but even to this approach because, Lord, like the Colossians, we too are always in danger of being deluded by plausible arguments. From within the church, from without the church, we live in a world full of plausible arguments. And we pray, Lord, that we would learn how to pray with thankfulness. Teach us that, even tonight, for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, um, I really had an opportunity to see firsthand how, how insecure the American church can be back in 2000. And uh, now I don't no normally point people out by name, but this guy Bruce Wilkinson wrote this book. The Prayer of Jabez. Anybody remember that book? Anybody read that book? I won't ask you if you liked it or not, because if I say something negative, then you might, you might be upset. But um, you might be upset anyway, but I don't want you to be publicly humiliated, so I'll let you keep your hands down. Well, this book sold 9 million copies. 9 million copies. And as some of you know, uh, I'm pretty good friends with Derek Webb and his wife, Sandra McCracken. Known them for a long, long time. Back in those days, Derek was still playing in this band, Caveman's Call. And they had opportunity to play at the CBA convention, which is the Christian Booksellers Association convention. 
And they were there to play at the behest of their record company right before Bruce, uh, I guess Bruce was first, right? He was going to be up, you know, was going to get up and he was supposed to just give a little brief little, little message. And then the band was going to play some songs. And he went on and on and on. And as I heard Sandra tell the story, the more he talked, the more she sat in the front row and just wept. Because his whole approach was, you need this. You need to pray for more of this, and you need more of this. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Derek ended up writing an entire record out of this event, all about how vulnerable the church was to the latest spiritual fad, because the church didn't understand that in the gospel, we had everything that we need for truth and godliness. The Bible says that. The Bible that all these Christian bookseller association people sell in their bookstores says that. But literally, Bruce, at the end of his talk, got all these booksellers who sell his books to pray the prayer with him. Now, some of you that grew up going to youth camp, you, know, you think you know what, it, what I mean when I say prayed the prayer. No, they didn't pray the prayer of salvation, inviting Jesus into their heart, like they do in a lot of evangelical kind of youth group settings. No, instead, they prayed the prayer of Jabez for God to enlarge their tents, to increase their businesses. And they all got down and they all prayed. And Sandra just sat there and she wept. And I, I think it's... It's just fascinating because later he decided he would write a follow-up book. And you know, it's amazing. It's amazing. I'll tell you more about this at the end of this message tonight. But it's amazing. They had pre-sold a million copies of this book and he hadn't even begun to read it. He had, sorry, he hadn't even begun to write it. And I got to go to a little meeting down at the factory in Franklin with a bunch of Christian singer-songwriters who they wanted to, them to hear him talk about what he wanted to write. His ghostwriters were there, of course, so that they could learn what they were supposed to write. And then he was there talking about this, this book so that all these songwriters could write songs and maybe get a cut on the record that was going to accompany the book. And it was absolutely disgusting to hear what this man was saying, which was so far from the gospel truth. Fortunately, as the songwriters began to interact with him and confound all his arguments, the book ended up being a lot better than it would have been. But I've always had this sense that I know what he wanted to write. And it was all about this, that no matter what you think you know, you still don't quite get it. You still need to know something else. There's something missing from your spiritual experience unless you buy the latest book, go to the latest conference, Listen to the latest teaching. And that's been that way for a long time. And it should sadden us. But you know, as worried as Paul is about the, the vulnerability of this people, what's fascinating to me is he doesn't even get to that till chapter 2. Because his worry for them, as well-found as it is, pales in comparison to his thankfulness for what God has done and what God was able to do. Look at this. Look at this. He believed that it was vital. The first thing that this church learned how to do was to pray prayers of thanksgiving. Now, that may not seem very practical to us. Like I said, we would, you know, 
If there's some plausible arguments out there coming against the truth of the gospel, well, then we should write a response book, or at least an article, or at least a blog post, or at least tweet about it, something to respond. Instead, he goes to this church and says, you know what I've been doing for you guys? I've been praying for you since the day I heard. I've been praying for you. And I want you to learn how to pray because the absolute most important thing for you to know is why you are Christians and who gets the credit and what the heart of the gospel is. And even though you know it, at one sense, you still need to know it more because you haven't even begun to exhaust the depths of the riches of the glory of God in the gospel. There's still, it's not more stuff you need out there. It's in what you already have and going deeper into that, getting it into your heart and your soul. That's what you need. That's what you need to grow and to be solid. So look at what he says here in this prayer. Let's look at it a little more closely. I love how right at the beginning he teaches us to give thanks to the God of the gospel. And then he teaches them to be thankful for the gospel itself. And then finally, we're going to look at how he teaches them and us to pray for the continual work of the gospel. So that's where we're going. We're going to look at how he teaches all of us to give thanks to the God of the gospel and why that's important. What does it mean to be thankful for the gospel itself? Why does that matter? And what does it mean to pray for the advancement and the movement, continual movement and expansion of the gospel? Look at first, in verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So he heard about the fact that they had become Christians. He heard that they had faith. He heard that they had love for God's people, which is part of the fruit of faith and a changed life that has come because the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done has come into their life. And so he does first give thanks where thanks is due. He gives credit where credit is due. And it's fascinating because, as he mentions down in verse 8 or verse 7, Epaphras is the one who actually brought the gospel to them. He's the one who preached the gospel. And actually, if you look in the book of Acts, you'll find that Epaphras was trained by Paul himself. So ultimately, you could trace the fact that the gospel came to these people because Paul had trained a guy, and then that guy went to them and preached the gospel. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, I thank God. When I heard that the gospel came to you, I thanked God. Why? Because Paul believed, and he sees this, you see this in his other letters, particularly in 1 Thessalonians, where he tells these people that we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because the gospel came to you not merely with words, but with power and deep conviction. So if the gospel that is preached becomes life for your soul, makes any impact whatsoever, it's because God, the God of the gospel, has brought you to life through this good news. And it's important that they understand that. He doesn't say, he doesn't pat them on the back and say, man, I'm so glad that you made a decision and you decided to ask Jesus into your life. 
I'm not going to quibble with you about whether or not you're a Christian, if that's sort of the kind of the theology that you came into the church of. But I'm saying that what Paul says you need to understand if you would become solid and stable in your faith is that if you are someone who loves the gospel and loves God's people, if you're someone who's come alive to Christ, then God is the one who gets credit for that. No matter who brought the gospel to you, God is the one because the gospel has power. Beware of any theology or teaching that wants to give man the credit rather than God. The gospel is God's gospel. It's good news about what he's done. And it changes people. As Paul says in his letter to the Romans, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And here he says a similar thing. The gospel, this word of truth, came to you. Sure, it came by Epaphras, who was trained by Paul, but the reason it came to you and the reason it had effect on you was because God's gospel has power. And and I would say as well, what's interesting is the way he keeps the hope, the gospel hope, connected to the God of grace. See, look now closely in verse 5. He says, I have not ceased giving thanks for you since I heard of your faith and the love you have for all the saints. That's verse 4. And then he says, because, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It's bearing fruit and increasing. Okay, so the gospel has come to you. The gospel literally means good news. And in our day and age, especially in kind of Protestant, more evangelical churches, if you know what that means, we use this word gospel, or we talk about preaching the gospel, but we use it often in a different way than the Bible means it. When we use this word, we often mean telling people a prayer that they need to pray. In other words, we, we say preaching the gospel means telling people what to do. But when Paul talks about the gospel, he literally means the good news about something that has happened, something that God has done. And somehow in our day and age, things have gotten turned upside down. Instead of preaching the gospel being a reference to declaring to people what God has done, it's more an invitation and an exhortation for them to do something. That's, that's worth pondering, the spiritual fallout from that shift. Because it's a pretty profound shift. Now, do I believe that there's a response that people should make to the gospel? Yes, but understand it's a response to the news of what God has done. That's important. It's good news. And here, when he uses this word hope, he doesn't use it as a verb. He uses it as a noun. The hope. There is a particular thing that is the hope. And look where it's laid up for them in heaven. There's actually a place in one of Peter's letters where he talks about how um, there is this righteousness that's kept in heaven where you can't get at it. The heart of what the gospel is about is that Jesus, God, became man, suffered death and died a torturous death on a cross, a death that all people who have sinned against God deserved, and in doing that, he tasted death. And when you put your hope and your trust in him, there is hope to be delivered from this death. But this hope, this hope 
is not a hope as long as you kind of are holding on to it and believing it perfectly and walking the straight and narrow, then as long as you kind of do everything right and keep up your part of the bargain, you have hope. Now look what he says about the hope. The hope is laid up for you in heaven. The way I like to think about it is your hope, if you're a Christian or if you're wondering what Christianity is about, Christianity is about having a hope that's up in heaven where you can't get at it. Do you know what's up in heaven? Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead in a glorified body, still bearing the wounds and the marks of his suffering. As he stands before his father, he pleads for all of those who are his people and says, Father, don't hold their sin against them. Hold it against me. I lived and died in their place. So here's the glorious good news of the gospel. If you have put your hope and trust in Jesus, what God thinks about you is based upon what Jesus has done. And Jesus already did the work, and he's now in heaven where you can't get at his righteousness to screw it up. Do you understand, when Paul talks about hope here, he's talking about something real and objective. He's not just saying, you know, I pray that God would just give you warm fuzzies. I pray that you would just kind of feel good about God and about your life. No, he says, I pray thankfulness to God that you have a hope. You have a hope. It's a real hope, and it's laid up in heaven. It's objective. It's real. Jesus really lived, and he really died on a cross. He really was raised, and he now is ascended at the right hand of the Father in a physical glorified body. These aren't just sort of abstract philosophical ideas that we try to hold on to. Something real happened, and it's different tonight because it happened. And even right now, Jesus stands at the right hand of God the Father. That's hope. Your hope is not that God sort of decided to wake up on the right side of the bed and smile at you today. Our hope is not fleeting. Our hope is real. Our hope is solid. Paul says that God and the truth of the gospel have real content. It's news about something that actually happened. And he thinks it's important that that's connected to what we pray about. And notice this as well. Verse 9, he prays and teaches them and us to pray when things look good. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to pray more fervently when things are looking bad. And I tend to forget to pray when things are going well. Are you like that? I suspect you probably are. But Paul says the gospel is working. It's, it's, it's working. It's come to you. It's changed you. It's bearing fruit all over the world. Therefore, I haven't ceased praying. You would think, like, I remember if you ever read those, um, oh, what was that, um, Frank Peretti books. You guys old enough to remember those? What, this present darkness? Yeah. And it's the idea like, man, God's cause is about to go under. He, he, I remember he came here to Belmont Church and said that I wrote these books so that people would pray. So what's the narrative he builds? Like, unless people pray, all hell is going to break loose. Like, unless you Christians pray, Satan's way is going to take over the world. And God's angels aren't going to be able to do anything. And God himself can't really do much unless you pray. He literally said, that's why I wrote the book. But do you see how opposite that is from what Paul says here? Paul says, I'm praying because the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. Not because I'm afraid that God's ways are about to be crushed and stamped out by the powers of darkness. 
Should you pray because Satan is prowling about like a lion seeking devour? Absolutely. But you should pray with confidence that the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. There are more Christians alive today than there ever have been in the history of the world. And the only reason you don't think that is because you live in America. And so we have this sense that the, that the gospel is on the retreat and that God's ways are barely uh, standing anymore and it gets tied into our politics and, the, and all this kind of stuff. But in the world today, the gospel is bearing fruit even more so than in Paul's day. That's just true. There are more Presbyterians in Ghana, West Africa, than in America and Scotland combined. Right now, today. Crazy. Isn't that crazy? Not that there's a lot of Presbyterians. <laughs> you know, but... And not that that means that the kingdom of God has arrived. But I just think that's fascinating. So, he teaches us to pray when things look good. And he teaches us that the gospel is something we should be thankful for itself. Look at this in verse 12. He basically, in this whole sense, like verse 11, actually we'll start with verse 11. He says this, here's his prayer for them. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And you might just end there and say, well, that's, we should pray that like, like magic. God would just sort of put that into people. That they would have patience and endurance. Oh, and give them joy too. That would be really awesome. God, would you do that? And we can just camp out in verse 11 and just try and pray that with all our might and hope that God would just magically do that. But look what it says in verse 12. It starts with a participle. Giving thanks. How do you do this? By giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So do you understand that the key to being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy is giving thanks. You can't get away from it. He starts out praying, giving thanks, and now he says, what I want you to do is to give thanks for the gospel. That's how patience and endurance and joy are built into your life. God does, Paul is not saying, I'm praying that you would just stick it out. That you'd have patience and endurance. No, I want you to have patience and endurance with joy. And the only thing that can give you that is to be absolutely sure that you're qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light because of what God has done. You don't need to be plagued by wondering whether you qualified yourself well enough. Because you could never do that. The only way you can really have patience and endurance and joy is by giving thanks that the gospel has qualified you. Now, I wish, sometimes I feel like we wish we could be spiritual without this. We just feel like, surely there's got to be something more. Surely there's got to be some other way of having endurance and patience and joy. But Paul says, no, this is how. Giving thanks that he has qualified you. Do you enjoy giving God thanks? for qualifying you to share in the inheritance. At one level, I hope you do. I mean, at one level, who wouldn't want to thank God and be dependent upon God doing everything? But at another level, we kind of don't like that and we resist it. You know why? Because our heart just loves to take credit. We just want to know that we got to have a part of it. But Paul says, no, the only way you're going to have patience and power and endurance and joy is give thanks. Giving thanks, you see, is the way you take what you know about God 
and you connect it to your heart. It's one thing to say, yes, I believe God saved me. It's another thing to regularly make it your practice to give thanks to him. Whether you have a difficult time believing it or not, give thanks. Whether you feel like you deserve it or not, give thanks that he qualified you. And let that giving thanks begin to work this spiritual reality into your heart and your soul. I had, um, I, I, I love this idea of the being qualified. I was talking to a friend of mine, this guy Rick, who some of you guys know him. He's an elder at City Church over in East Nashville. I've known Rick a long, long, long time. And he was telling me this great story. And it just, you know, well, he, he thought he was having a heart attack. Thought he was having a heart attack. So he goes to Vanderbilt, gets an ambulance, takes him to Vanderbilt Hospital. On the way there, he calls his daughter-in-law at the time. His daughter-in-law calls her dad and says, you know, Rick's coming to the hospital. All right. Well, the, the significance of that is that at this point, her father is the CEO of Vanderbilt Hospital. Right? So Rick gets there. And there's no rooms. But you can be sure that pretty soon they moved some poor guy out of his room. And Rick had a room, a private room. And people began to come see him, important people. At one point, at one point this, this shorter guy comes up to, to Rick's room and asks if he can give him anything or bring him anything. And Rick says, well, you know, maybe some apple juice would be nice. So the guy leaves and he comes back and he brings him some apple juice. And the nurse, after the guy leaves, says, who are you? Are, are, are you like a rock star or something? And he's like, well, you know, I, I used to play in a band. He, he, he literally, now, the cool thing about my friend Rick is he was there when Hendrix burned his guitar at the Monterey Pop Festival, right? And he just was like, what's he doing? Like, you know, that's right. Um, he opened for a band called Quicksilver Messenger Service, which I'd be surprised if anybody knows that band, Bay Area band from the late 60s, right? No. So he's not a rock star. They're like, who are you? And he goes, why? What do you mean? Do you know who that was that just brought you apple juice? He goes, no. That was the head of cardiology at Vanderbilt Hospital. <laughs> and he just went and got you apple juice. <laughs> who are you? Well, it doesn't matter who he is. He knows Norm. And Norm's the head. He's the head dude. See, that's, that's what it's like to believe in the gospel. You've been qualified, not because of who you are in yourself, but because of who you know. And it changes everything. Well, my friend Craig Brown likes to say, I'm nobody. I just know a guy. Yeah, but you know, you know a significant guy. If you know Jesus, you may be nobody. You may be nothing, but you know a guy. And that changes everything, right? The gospel is on the move. And this is where I want us to go next. I know we've got to close here, and I'm going to pick up the rest of chapter 1 next week. But I love this, that the gospel is on the move. Do you think about the gospel as just sort of this static set of beliefs or truths that you're supposed to believe if you're a Christian? The way Paul talks about it, the gospel is a force. It's an energy. It's on the move. It's truths about something that happened that shakes the world and changes everything. It's bigger than just us. It's bigger even than just God loved me 
before the foundation of the world. As amazing as that is, the gospel is actually bigger because the gospel is about the whole of creation being redeemed and restored. And I think so often we just think of the gospel as like this little thing that I need to believe so that I get on God's side. But the way Paul talks about the gospel and the way he prays for this people, what he's teaching them to do is you never outgrow your need for the gospel. You never outgrow your need for this good news message to be alive in your heart. Everything is, is, is about that in the Christian life. I, I think so often people in, in sort of kind of North American evangelical world think of the gospel as sort of this thing that you have to believe and pray about so that you become a Christian and then you kind of read the Bible and try to figure out how you're supposed to live. And that twisted set of half-truths is not the gospel and it's not Christianity. It's just moralism with sort of a Christian gloss on it. The gospel is about how the truth that Jesus lived and died for sinners, is alive and truth and has power to shape and mold everything. That's the reality. So Paul prays, and what can we learn about his prayer? A couple things just here at the end. He prays for the work of the gospel to go deeper in their life. So often, if you look at your prayers, and I'm, I'm happy just if you pray, <laughs> Right? But what I want you to think about is how do my prayers for myself, for my friends, for my world look related to what Paul prays for? Paul prays for the gospel to go deeper into their lives, for them to have power to understand and to grasp this gospel, that it would take root in their lives and that it would spill over into a way of life, right? He prays for more than just people he knows. He doesn't even know these people. And he prays for these kind of spiritual blessings. And he prays, he prays for endurance that comes from knowing the gospel. See, I think sometimes, I don't know if you've ever been like this, but you're like, you know, I'm really anxious about this thing. And the more I pray about it, the more anxious I am. And often that's because we try to use prayer as a technique to sort of escape the reality we're living in. To somehow spiritually check out. But prayer is not about that. Prayer is about getting the gospel present in your heart and on your heart so that you can be in the midst of whatever God has called you to be in and know that he's with you and that the truth of what he's done is real in the midst of whatever you're going through. Prayer is not sort of your way of spiritually checking out of reality. Prayer is a way of bringing the more sort of the meta-reality, if you will, of Jesus living and dying in your place into the reality that at the moment seems all-encompassing and all-sovereign. Think about that. So what happens so often is that our trials and our disappointments and our fears seem bigger than anything. And prayer is not a way of us just sort of closing that off and not thinking about it and just thinking about Jesus and trying to meditate on him. No, prayer is a way of bringing the reality of Jesus' life and death and bringing it right into the reality that you're really in, and saying, how does it measure up? I know it may seem huge, you know, this thing that you're dealing with, but the life and death of Jesus is even more real. And prayer brings that reality, connects those realities together. So I told you about, um, you know, getting to hear Bruce down at the, the factory. The follow-up to the prayer of Jabez. 
And uh, it was a book that came out eventually called The Deal of the Century. And I'll never forget this. My friend Andy Osenga, maybe we get him to tell this story himself because he's going to come and do chapel. RUF's going to sponsor a chapel coming up uh, later in February. So he's going to come and sing some of his music and, and talk a little bit. But Andy said, Kevin, you got to come to this. You know, they, the, our publisher wants us to go and listen to this stuff so we can write songs. And so we go and we hear, and literally this is what the guy says. He goes, you know... I know you've heard that the motivation to live the Christian life is to kind of look back at what Jesus did on the cross and then be thankful for that. He goes, but I'm going to tell you that that's actually not the motivation for the Christian life. The only motivation for the Christian life is fear of punishment and hope of rewards. And if I could just get this message out to the Christian church, it would transform the world. And he starts laughing maniacally. Uh, that's not a la I mean, I literally have the recordings. You can listen to this. It was like, bizarre like he's just laughing overjoyed because he's just so excited to think about the way this is going to change the Christian church and my friend Andy you know didn't he I think he might have finished one year at Belmont dropped out of college because he got a record deal right which I know is what you all wish to do too but but he actually did it and he, he he raises his hand he goes now Bruce if we already have Jesus like what other hope of reward could motivate us <laughs> And, and Bruce had no answer. And all I can tell you is, a couple of years later, when that book was actually written, I bought it, and I looked at it, and it wasn't nearly as bad as he wanted it to be. And I thought, isn't this fascinating? The truth of the gospel, and I was so encouraged that, that Andy was able to stand and ask this question. It seemed like, how could you stand against a guy that sold nine million books, and whose next book that hadn't even been written yet has already been you know, pre-sold a million copies to Christian bookstores all over the country. And he just, you know, and he starts saying this stuff. And Andy's like, I got Jesus. What else do I need? Seriously, dude, did you forget, like, what the gospel is about? That's what this letter is about. If you have Jesus, if you have the gospel, if you have the hope laid up in heaven for you, it allows you to stand against stuff that sounds so spiritual and so necessary and so valuable that you just got to have it. It allows you to stand and say, no, I've got Jesus. Now, we're going to talk more about what this looks like and how it actually changes the way you live. And we're going to look, um, go through this book. This is a, a profound book about how that truth connects to living differently. So I hope you'll stick around. Let me pray for us now.